Garrett Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great day where one of the uh, most skillful political debaters in the country. And you could see that last time he was a presidential candidate, which was 2016, where first couple of debates, uh, Chris Christie knows how to handle himself, particularly in that kind of adversarial situation. He will be joining our show in the middle of this hour, and we're honored to have him. Uh, we will take a look at his take on the latest scandals, and they are scandals, engulfing uh, not just uh, his fellow Republican, Donald Trump, uh, where there is more claim uh, that <laughs> President Trump is a legitimate person, is what he is insisting. Uh, what does that mean exactly? Uh, we will get to that, but also Chris Christie's take on the Hunter Biden situation and whether it uh, is fair to demand uh, that the president answer some questions about it. Uh, as a former prosecutor, Christie would be a good person to ask. Uh, there's also a question about Biden that was put up here by Reuters. Uh, does Biden owe reparations? Okay, Reuters is focused specifically on the impact of history on politics here. And Reuters reports that, quote, in researching the genealogies of America's political elite, a Reuters examination found that a fifth of the nation's congressmen, uh, living presidents, Supreme Court justices, and governors are direct descendants of ancestors who enslaved black people. Wow. And it turns out that President Joe Biden and every living U.S. president, meaning the former U.S. presidents, except for one, every living former president are descendants of slaveholders. Joe Biden is. Jimmy Carter is. Uh, George W. Bush is. Uh, Bill Clinton is. And, and, amazingly enough, through his mother's side, uh, Ob Obama had a mother who grew up on Mercer Island, Washington, and uh, she was born in Kansas, uh, but she was white and uh, met her husband, Barack Obama Sr., at the University of Hawaii. But in, on her father's, on her mother's side, uh, on his mother's side, Barack Obama's ancestors were slave owners in North Carolina. Isn't that remarkable? So that's how ubiquitous slavery was. By the way, uh, who is the one president who uh, does not have slave owner in his background? It's Trump. And I know that's kind of hard to believe because, uh, again, it's a kind of thing that he could be very proud of. But both his mother was born in Scotland. She never lived in the United States before she came here. So there was no uh, background of her, his grandparents on his mother's side. And his grandfather uh, 
not his father, but his grandfather came here. His name was, and the real name wasn't Trump. It was Drumpf. And he came here from Germany and uh, was not a slave owner there. So <laughs> you can accuse uh, President Trump of lots and lots of stuff. You can't apparently accuse him of having slave-owning ancestors. Uh, and in fact, President Trump was talking to Fox News Digital, and uh, he continues to say that despite the fact that he's been indicted on 37 charges involving classified documents and their mishandling, and they clearly were mishandled, uh, Trump uh, insisted that he has done nothing wrong. Uh, listen, this is 14.5. You're not concerned then with your own voice on those on those recordings? My voice was fine. What did I say wrong on those recordings? I didn't even see the recording. All I know is I did nothing wrong. We had a lot of papers, a lot of papers stacked up. In fact, you could hear the rustle of the paper, and nobody said I did anything wrong other than the fake news, which, of course, is Fox, too. Are there any other recordings that we should be concerned of? Uh, I don't know of any recordings that you should be re, uh, concerned with because I don't do things wrong. I do things right. I'm a legitimate person. I'm okay, he he does doesn't do things wrong. He does things right. He's a legitimate. Why? Okay, question here, and it is so nutty. Why didn't he just send the papers back to the National Archives when they asked for them? And one of the answers that he gave to Brett Baer was he said, well, he had to go through the boxes, and the boxes were full of, oh, come on, you know, you're Donald Trump. I mean, even when you're out of office, he has hundreds of people working for him. He's raised $250 million for his campaign. I mean, take some of those very wonderful people you've hired and get them to go through the papers and then provide the National Archives with what they wanted so you don't get a, a subpoena against you and you don't have the uh, the the fact that uh, you are, are now facing a very serious trial with uh, all legal experts agree a, a very real chance of him losing uh, again. And when I say again, uh, I mean, remember, in the trial, the battle he had over a rape charge with E. Jean Carroll, that jury didn't take long at all to uh, hold him liable, President Trump, for $5 million. So you really still want to continue battling on, on that basis? Concerning the tale of Trump and the tapes and the Trump tapes, uh, Nikki Haley uh, took a uh, moderate and reasonable, it seems to me, position. This is clip 14. In terms of the recording that's happened, we're going to let the courts play that out and do whatever. I have long said anybody that wants to run for president can run for president. I think that's for the people to decide. Okay, she was basically asked whether he should be disqualified. And this is Trump on the tape, on tape, of him discussing the classified documents. Uh, the comment that he made about the famous tape that everybody has now heard that he made at Bedminster in uh, October, I believe it was, of 2021. Listen. 
We did absolutely nothing wrong. This is just another hoax. It's called, uh, I would say, election interference more than anything else. It's a disgrace that they can do it. Next question. But everything was fine. We did nothing wrong, and everybody knows it. Okay. We did nothing wrong. Everybody knows it. The polls don't show that. Uh, that most people recognize that you don't go through a grand jury process and then there there's more coming uh, with the grand jury. In fact, there's reason to believe that uh, the feds are now getting ready. They just interviewed members of the Secret Service who had been around Trump on January 6th. There is an extremely high likelihood of further indictments concerning President Trump's behavior surrounding January 6th and attempting to overturn the election, which is a serious matter and a unique matter. We've never had another situation like that, where a defeated candidate for president just refused to accept it and tried very hard to overturn it. Uh, Chris Christie coming up, uh, we'll be talking more about Bidenomics uh, versus Trumpy tapes and more coming up. On and on the Michael Medved show, uh, there was a uh, program last night um, that uh, took place in the Uptown Y, that's the 92nd Street YMHA in uh, New York City, uh, that was moderated by David Rubenstein, who has been a guest on this show. He uh, writes books about American history. He's one of those um, extremely wealthy people who has used his money to do wonderful things. For instance, the rebuilding and reconstructing of the Washington Monument. That's David Rubenstein's money. And he also bought one of the original copies of the Constitution of the United States for his personal collection and has been saying that around museums. In any event, he was the moderator in a program with Liz Cheney and the former congresswoman, former member of the House Republican leadership, daughter of a vice president, of course, daughter of a defense secretary. She, um, she laid it on the line... And I think speaking for what a lot of Americans feel when they look at our current crop of politicians and you don't feel a great deal of enthusiasm. Well, certainly Liz Cheney didn't. She said uh, this about the future of the two-party system, which was the subject of her program at the 92nd Street Y. Uh, this is clip 12. What we've done in our politics is create a situation where what we've done in our politics is create a situation where we're electing idiots. <laughs> and, um, and so I, I don't look at it through the lens of like, you know, is this what I should do or what I shouldn't do? I look at it through the lens of how do we elect serious people? And I think electing serious people can't be partisan. Okay, uh, does that sound like she might be open if they do have a a ticket um, for uh, no labels that uh, she could be 
finding herself on that ticket, maybe as a vice presidential candidate, maybe as a presidential candidate. I am, I, I am very, very doubtful because it is such a, a difficult thing that any third party or new party candidate could possibly win. And the problem really becomes our electoral college system. You have to carry uh, a an overwhelming majority of the states to win in the electoral college, which is tough for a third-party candidate to do. The last third-party candidate to win even one electoral vote, let alone the 270 you need to get elected president, Last person who won even one electoral vote was George Wallace, the segregationist candidate who got 46 electoral votes back in 1968. It's tough. And that is um, actually in the context of what Liz Cheney was talking about. Um, she, uh, uh, she, she said, and again, this idea of electing serious people, she's right about that. And uh, she says, you know, because the situation we're in where we have a major party candidate who's trying to unravel our democracy, and I don't say that lightly, we have to talk, think about, all right, what kinds of alliances are necessary to defeat him, and those are the alliances we've got to build across party lines. Um, and she was very clear. She said, I'm not going to do anything that would help Donald Trump. She was asked if uh, she would run for president if she saw uh, doing so could help Trump, and uh, who's continued to lead in the Republican primary. And she says, no, I'm not going to do anything that would help Donald Trump. That is not, that is not her goal by any means. Uh, then there was this talking about serious people that we need to elect. Uh, Paul Ryan, who uh, I think is coming out of hiding a little bit and uh, having something to say about our politics, talked about the fitness of President Trump for President of the United States. And then Paul Ryan is somebody who supported President Trump uh, while he was Speaker of the House and uh, in the election of 2016 campaigned for him. Uh, the tax break that uh, that President Trump got passed was largely designed by and because of Paul Ryan's leadership. But here's what he said about the president he once supported. Uh, this is clip six. Like I'm a never again Trumper, so obviously that the 33 percent Trump base doesn't like a person like me because I'm very clear. I don't think he's fit and I don't think he can win. Uh, Liz is right. He could. And that's dangerous. I mean, get. You think he could even populate a cabinet? He could get through the Senate? I mean, I, it could be a total disaster. But I believe strongly, if we nominate a Republican, nominate Donald Trump, we win this White House. I, I really believe that. And so all we got to do is do that. And I think voters are going to realize his baggage is so big, we're not going to win with him, and there are all these other Republicans that, they, that they're fine with that could win. Okay, there are all these other Republicans who people are fine with who could win. Is Chris Christie one of them? <laughs> and uh, we we are joined by Governor Christie in a few minutes. He he was just uh, insulted again. This time not about his weight. This time about his political appeal. Uh, President Trump told Newsmax 
that Chris Christie couldn't get elected dog catcher. We'll get a response from him on that and then uh, get a a response for him about uh, how he is going to try to get uh, uh, President Trump to participate in uh, in the debates, because it seems to me that's the whole point of Chris Christie's candidacy. And now Trump is sounding more and more like he won't go forward and join the debates. Uh, Chris Christie is a former governor of New Jersey, two-term governor of New Jersey, won in a landslide when he ran for a second term. He's also a former U.S. prosecutor, a United States attorney, who uh, has put all kinds of corporate bad guys in addition to ordinary bad guys in jail. And he is a a great uh, Bruce Springsteen fan. Uh, He will be joining us with lots of questions to answer about his campaign. And uh, it's, again, is he running at the top of the heap? No, but in New Hampshire, which is the state in which he's put the greatest emphasis, uh, he suddenly soared from uh, 2% to 9%, which um, means that, who knows, there are not... uh, Every door is already closed. Uh, By the way, Chris Christie's uh, new book, uh, most recent book, is called Republican Rescue, Saving the Party from Truth Deniers, Conspiracy Theorists, and the Dangerous Policies of Joe Biden. Uh, We will be talking about all of that with Governor Christie coming up. It's awesome. Every day on the Michael Medved Show. And on the Michael Medved Show, I see that uh, Chris Christie has put up a uh, another um, message on his Twitter account that will probably not please the former president of the United States, who is one of the people's running against Chris Christie for the uh, Republican nomination for president. Um he uh, uh, there's a picture here of Chris Christie looking like he's on a b- debate stage somewhere, which of course he hopes to be. And uh, they quote Chris Christie as saying, "What Donald Trump is good at, at is spending other people's money." And then underneath he says, "He's the cheapest sob I've ever met." Christie rips Trump for diverting campaign money to PAC. Uh, Governor Christie, thank you for joining us. We've been uh, talking about your work and your uh, the most recent message you posted on Twitter. And that message, you're holding a microphone. It looks like you're in the middle of a debate. Do you have a, a guaranteed way to, uh, I mean, other than getting the 40,000 people you will get, maybe have gotten already to contribute to your campaign, to make sure that Trump actually agrees to meet you on that debate stage? I don't, but, you know, Michael, I, I, I do think that it's important for the RNC. You know, they've set rules regarding amount of donors. They've set rules on polling. They've set rules to have a loyalty pledge. I think they need to set a rule that requires participation in the debates 
um, if, in fact, you want to participate in any of them. So it shouldn't be that any candidate gets to pick and choose which debates that are sponsored by the RNC, um, you know, they show up at. If you choose to skip one, in my view, you shouldn't be permitted to come to any of the rest of them. Now, I was not sure. I know that you have said that you would take the loyalty pledge just as seriously as Trump took it in 2016, which wasn't seriously at all. Does that mean that you would make a loyalty pledge that you would support anyone uh, who wins the nomination for the Republican Party would get your support? I would sign the pledge, Michael, in order to get on the debate stage and try to save my party and my country. But as I've said to everybody, I'll take the pledge just as seriously as Donald Trump did in 2016. When you'll re- recall at, at, at a debate after the pledge was signed, we were asked to reaffirm the pledge by raising our hands. There were 10 of us on the stage, and nine of us raised our hands, and Donald Trump did not. And he said, well, I'll just have to see how it turns out. So, And he wasn't kicked off the stage by the RNC at that point in time. So, you know, we'll take it just as seriously as he did. Good. Okay, so here's the other question that I have, and I think a lot of people have, is that uh, there's such a sense of negativity in our politics right now. What is the number one positive change that people would see in our country at large uh, under a Chris Christie administration? A nationwide educational choice program, Michael where regardless of your socioeconomic status, regardless of where you live, the parents should have universal choice as to where to send their children to school. You know, for those of us who have done well in life and have the financial resources, we already have that. But there are many who do not, and especially those who are in failing schools. If you want to lift the optimism and the hope of every family in America, allow them to be integral deciders of where their children are educated and if you do that and we get people going to you know schools that really can help educate them you look at the the latest national testing scores and it is a disgrace how far america is falling in terms of the way we educate our kids and it's because we're excluding parents and forcing them to, to go to schools that are failure factories and we need to do much better and i think that's one way to increase hope in every household all across the country. Good for you. Uh, What about actually winning the war in Ukraine and, more importantly, defeating the evil empire of Vladimir Putin? Why and how would you do a better job of that than Joe Biden or Donald Trump? Well, first of all, I wouldn't send mixed signals like both Trump and Biden have done. Trump did it by leveraging military support uh, for Ukraine against them getting dirt on Joe Biden during a presidential campaign. And Biden, uh, you know, when he entered office, said, well, a small incursion wouldn't be a problem. Um, Well, everybody's definition of small is different. And now we see what Vladimir Putin's definition of small is. Look, there need to be clear signals from the American president that we are with Ukraine and we will not cut and run. We need to send them the military hardware that they need to be able to fight the war against Russia. And we need to make sure that this war is ultimately resolved on terms that are acceptable to Ukraine. And that's what I would do as president. And I would try to play a positive role in getting it resolved. 
Um, but the way, the best way to do that is to let Russia know that in the end, China, who is really this is who our proxy war is with, since the Chinese are funding the Russian war effort by buying so much Russian oil. Um, we need to let them know that uh, we are going to stand with Ukraine and we will not be cutting and running. Uh, that's a clear message. And what message would you uh, try to send uh, with uh, the most important appointments that you would be making to the White House staff and to the cabinet? What are you looking for above all with people you're going to have as part of an administration? Well, the first rule in my administration is we won't hire our family to positions in the White House <laughs> that then permits them to grift um, on their public position and get $2 billion from the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund six months after they leave office. That won't be something that will be allowed to happen, uh, which was done under Donald Trump. Um, secondly, we're going to appoint people who are unquestionably competent and qualified, and we're going to let them run their departments with real philosophic direction from the president about what we want to get accomplished and deadlines on attempting to get that accomplished. And most importantly, um, we're going to appoint an attorney general as a former U.S. attorney. I can guarantee you this. We will appoint an attorney general who will prosecute every crime without fear or favor or partisanship and require that of every U.S. attorney in the Department of Justice and folks in Maine Justice. Um, that's the way to restore faith and confidence in our judicial system in this country, which has been torn to tatters ever since Eric Holder became Attorney General back in, in, in 2009. Do you think uh, there's going to be a role for Bruce Springsteen in the uh, Christie administration? Just for him to keep singing. That'll be about it. Michael, nothing else. <laughs> well, I certainly hope you keep uh, sing, uh, singing, sir. Uh, concentrating on New Hampshire right now? Yes, concentrating on New Hampshire right now. We're going to make a big effort there, but we're also going to spend time in South Carolina. Um, we really believe that there's opportunity in South Carolina, that the race is going to look different by the time South Carolinians will be voting. And as you know, there are a lot of South Carolinians now who are refugees from New York and New Jersey. And uh, so they won't be thrown off at all um, by a, uh, a direct um, and effective Northeastern governor coming down there to make the case for becoming president. Okay. President Trump just said uh, to Newsmax, Christie couldn't get elected dog catcher. Your quick response. <laughs> He's obviously scared. He shouldn't be talking about me at all, and he can't quite help himself. I, you, this is my message to the president. Be a man and show up on August 23rd, and then we can have a full discussion about who's going to get elected to what. I appreciate it. That's Governor Chris Christie. We will put up uh, on our website at michaelmedved.com a way to get in touch with him uh, directly. I already know people, uh, Governor Christie, who are very enthusiastic about your campaign. And are grateful that you're running and that your voice is out there. We will be right back. The Michael Medford.
And on the Michael Medved show, there's a candidate for president that uh, has not been getting too much attention, and now he's gotten a whole bunch of attention that is very unwelcome. I'm talking about the mayor of Miami, uh, Francis Suarez, who's a good guy and could be uh, a good face for the Republican Party future. He's a young guy. He's dynamic. Uh, he speaks well. But he was on uh, the radio with my friend Hewitt, and uh, Hugh asked him a little bit about China and China's oppression about the Uyghur people. Uh, and uh, the Uyghur people, of course, are a Muslim minority that has been terribly oppressed, Turkic minority, by uh, their Chinese overlords. And here is what their exchange sounded like, uh, much to uh, Mayor Suarez's embarrassment. This is clip 15. Will you be talking about the Uyghurs in your campaign? What, the what? The Uyghurs. What's a Uyghur? Okay, we'll come back to that. Uh, you gave me homework, uh, Hugh. I'll, I'll look at what, uh, what was it, what did you call it, a Weeble? The Uyghurs. You really I'm need to know about the Uyghurs, Mayor. You got to talk about it every know. day. I will, okay. I will. I will talk about. I will. Forward, I will search Uyghurs. I'm. I'm a good learner. I'm a fast learner. Okay, uh, Nikki Haley, uh, <laughs> who was our ambassador to the United Nations, uh, she knows all about the Uyghurs. Of course, she was asked about Suarez's confusion this morning. He, well, he didn't seem to know who the Uyghurs were in China, what would you say to him about the importance of this issue? Over a million Muslim Uyghurs sitting in China. They are making them change their name, change their religion, mm -hmm. sexual abuse. I mean, genocide. We promise never again to look away from genocide. And it's happening right now in China. And no one is saying anything because they're too scared of China. Part of American foreign policy should always be that we fight for human rights for all people. And what's happening with the Uyghurs is disgusting. And the fact that the whole world is ignoring it is shameful. Uh, by the way, um, this has happened to other presidential candidates, not just Mayor Suarez. Uh, in 2016, the most successful libertarian candidate for president ever was a former governor of New Mexico, Gary Johnson. And uh, back in the campaign of 2016, he uh, had a, a tough time because at the moment uh, there was a genocide going on in Aleppo, which is the uh, largest city by population actually in Syria. And uh, Gary Johnson, the governor of New Mexico, candidate for president of the United States, seemed to be unaware of what was going on at all. It sounded like this, clip 20. What would you do if you were elected about Aleppo? About Aleppo. And what is Aleppo? You're kidding. No. Aleppo is in Syria. It's the, uh, it's the epicenter of the refugee crisis. Okay, got it. Got it. Okay. Well, with regard to okay. Syria, um, I do think that it's a mess. Okay. Uh, there was another instance like this, <laughs> and it's one of the reasons we 
we uh, ended up uh, having Donald Trump as president of the United States, really. Uh, this was the debate that the Republicans held in Las Vegas, and, uh, and, and Hugh Hewitt was part of the panel that was asking questions. And he asked President Trump, who was then Mr. Trump, a, um, uh, what was Mr. Trump's concept of the nuclear triad? And the nuclear triad is that we have three different methods for delivering our nuclear weapons. One is from silos in the ground, one is from airplanes, and one is from submarines. Okay, uh, he asked Trump about the nuclear triad, and Trump had no idea and didn't even try to fake it and basically just said, I, I've got better things to do than to answer questions from a third-rate disc jockey with no listeners. Uh, in other words, he took it. He took out his his anger at um, at uh, Hugh Hewitt. Uh, it uh, it it worked better than uh, simply saying as Suarez did or as Gary Johnson did. I have no idea. And uh, and by the way, Gary Johnson, despite not knowing what Aleppo was, uh, he may have thought what it was some Aleppo. Kind of yeah, what is Aleppo? Uh, he was running, his big issue was uh, marijuana. And he was all been a, a strong advocate when he was governor and when he was a candidate for president of the Libertarian Party. He is a, a very strong advocate for legalized uh, marijuana. And uh, the fact is, he got almost 3% of the popular vote nationwide. And if you break it down to the key states that Trump won, and you look at the votes that went to Jill Stein, the Green Party candidate, and to Gary Johnson, the Libertarian Party candidate, uh, assuming, as most studies indicate, that most of those candidates would otherwise have voted for Hillary Clinton. Uh, Gary Johnson really did play, and Jill Stein, certainly the Green Party candidate, they both played very major roles in making sure that President uh, Trump carried uh, Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and uh, other states that were incredibly close in uh, 2016 and put Trump into the presidency. Um, speaking of uh, which, um, Trump in the presidency, uh, Neil Katyal, who was a former acting solicitor general of the United States, he was a top DOJ official under the Obama administration. He's now a legal analyst on MSNBC. And he said that uh, in terms of dramatic developments, uh, we should look ahead and we will see some that uh, are very dramatic, particularly involving new indictments for President Trump. Uh, listen, this is clip three. How would all of these cases essentially be tried or proffered at once? Because it feels like there are just Jack Smith alone could do three or four cases himself. 
Yeah, no, exactly, Joy. I mean, if this were a TV show, we're like only in season two of what's likely to be a five or six season special at this point. Um, Jack Smith is certainly moving, it looks to me, to indict Trump for January 6th. The Secret Service bringing them in to testify before the grand jury is an extraordinary step. Um, You know, the Secret Service agents were literally in the room or the car where all this stuff happened on January 6th and in the days before January 6th. And there is no privilege for Secret Service agents. Uh, Bill Clinton tried to assert a privilege back in 1999, and the U.S. Supreme Court rejected it. So I think these cases will be staggered. You don't get like an extra benefit because you're a serial criminal and get to delay them all. You got to, you know, you, you, so they will all go to trial and they will be staggered in some way, shape or form. What's interesting uh, about the Secret Service and uh, trying to speak to the people who are right alongside President Trump as he was trying to decide where he was going to go after delivering his speech? Was he going to go up, as he said he would, uh, to uh, march up to the Capitol building with the demonstrators or... Uh, was he forced to go back to the White House by the Secret Service? The, the question here is, what did he have in mind? In other words, it's, it's the same kind of thing you have with the documents, which is, okay, you're talking about I'll be right with you, we'll be marching up to the Capitol. What did President Trump think was going to happen? What did he think was going to happen uh, by not giving back documents that were under subpoena, by still hiding them and holding on to them? What was it that he had in mind after he had told people the election was stolen uh, about leading a whole crowd of thousands of people up to the Capitol building where they were certifying the election? Coming up tomorrow, we'll ask economist Peter Coy, is it a rich session that we have or a rolling recession or maybe no recession at all? And is Glenn Youngkin the destined dark horse in this presidential election?